chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. One of the difficulties of being a film scholar, and a difficulty I'm sure many scholars of popular culture struggle with, is appreciating media from the past for its innovations and the ways that it advanced the medium, while also struggling with the outdated and often troubling content. That's the balance we're going to attempt to address today. Janelle, are you ready to help me walk that line? I've got my dramaturg hat on. I'm ready to contextualize. I'm ready to place things in its proper historical moment. Eliza, I can't wait. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, we've got some history to dive into this week. <laughs> we've been we've been doing our travel movies, and we're we're gonna kind of go backwards this time around. We're gonna end the month with the earliest of the movies that we're talking about. Um, so we're, we're this week we're talking about. The Road to Morocco. Yes, of the famous Road to series with uh, Bing Crosby, Old Blue Eyes, and uh, Bob Hope. Yes, with frequent appearances by Dorothy L'Amour as the love interest for typically both men, which is something we should talk about. So I guess I'll, uh, I'll kick us off this week since we're going to be doing some, uh, some film history and criticism. I'm going to put on my professor hat. <clears throat> and I guess I will uh, kick us off with a Google summary. Starving vagabond Jeff, Bing Crosby, sells his best friend Orville, Bob Hope, into slavery in a Moroccan marketplace to buy food. Searching for his partner after an attack of conscience, Jeff discovers that Orville is now engaged to the gorgeous Princess Shalmar, Dorothy L'Amour, whose astrologers have told her that her first husband will die violently, leaving her free to marry her beloved sheik, Malay Kasim, Anthony Quinn. And when the princess falls for Jeff, things get complicated. Well, Janelle, that amazing summary is what Google says this movie is about. But what's this movie really about? Well, Eliza, um, I'm no uh, Edward Said of Orientalism fame, but I would say that this movie is about when the world gives you economic and political globalization, uh, you also get with it the world as your fantasy play space. People, (laughs) cultures, countries their native flora and fauna become yours to fantasize about. And I think that that's what Road to Morocco and the whole Road 2 series is about. (laughs) Yes, these are hardcore fantasy and not necessarily in a good way, um, but definitely they are fantastical in that they are not based in any reality. (laughs) And, you know, it's clear that the movie is aware that it is not embedded in reality, which is a really important balance that it has to strike. But nonetheless, it it does traffic pretty obviously in harmful Orientalism, stereotypes, bad history, straight up weird gender politics. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The list goes on. (laughs) So they know, they know what they're doing, but not in the way that somebody making this sort of film in 2021 would know what they were doing. This movie is from the year of our Lord, 1942. So we've got to go back a ways. And obviously the Western perception of the world as a whole and of the Eastern world was different then than it is now. <laughs> That's so generous of you, Eliza. It was different. It was it's not like we've we're great at uh the, you know, racial and uh 
ethnographic stereotypes now, but I do think we were worse at it then. I feel like to call it different is sort of like, you know, I'm Southern, right? So growing up, people have all kinds of nice ways to say mean things. And uh, one of those is that when someone is just like not okay in a variety of ways, you just say, you know, they are different. They are so, they are so different. They are different. Janelle, and that's this I think movie. how we're talking about this. This movie is different. It is so different. It is just different. <laughs> so to give a little bit of context, this movie is Road to Morocco, which was the third out of seven Road to movies that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope um, starred in. Most of them came out in the 40s. The final two were several years later and were not as successful because they'd sort of missed their moment. Um, but five of these movies came out pretty much one after another with only a year or two in between any of them. Um, and they were vastly popular. They were all the same basic structure. Um, these two guys would get stranded somewhere or be going somewhere and then get sidetracked and then end up in an exotic locale, run into Dorothy L'Amour. They'd both vie for her attentions. Hilarity ensues. Mm -hmm. They're very cut and paste plot wise. Um, and this one was the third one and it was sort of, it is the one that is often sort of considered the best example of these because the two of them are kind of in their prime, um, from a comedy standpoint, none of them are good from a, you know, racial sensitivity standpoint. Uh, although this one I think is especially horrific. Yeah. I think that part of the thing looking back and in the time period, of course, they're like all of these movies, they're thinking about them as parodies of travel logs. They're kind of smashing together their exceptional skills as vaudeville comedians, as like a straight man and a, and a, and a funny guy um, on stage with these uh, travel log films that were really popular, I believe, in the 1930s. Isn't that right, mm -hmm. Eliza? Yes. Um, yeah. When people had no money and were stuck at home, they really liked the idea of traveling to exotic locations when traveling to exotic locations became a thing that would have resulted in traveling to the middle of a battlefield, that in and of itself became a little less appealing and the parodies of it started to appear. And it is really interesting that if you look at the series of movies um, that came out initially in the first run of them, they are sort of all centered around the various World War II theaters of war, but they're mm -hmm. not actually in them. They're not in the active combat zones, which is so interesting. You know, it's all these countries that were tangentially touched by warfare and by the various World War II colonial powers, like Morocco at this time was a protectorate of France. Um, and it was actually controlled by the Vichy French government, so by la Nazis. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's allowing the audience to kind of acknowledge that this is a place where war is being fought, but you get to kind of escape to this it's it's the present, but it's also the past. Like so much of what they show in this movie that is quote unquote Morocco is probably the Northern Africa of the late 18th century, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. The Orientalism that is on display here is truly a pastiche of the Orientalism of, I would say, several centuries kind of glommed into one. Um, part of the problem with that sort of 19th century Orientalism was that they took a lot of generalities and placed them all together. And that includes generalities about what North Africa and the Middle East looked like during biblical times, mm. during recent history, during the current period, and kind of assuming that that all exists together because there is a Western colonialized, Western colonizer notion that this place has not progressed. 
Mm. And that the Western people coming in are going to bring civilization and bring progression to this place that has been the same for hundreds of years, which is obviously not true, but that's what this visual becomes. And that's super on display here where there's, you know, no sense that you're in a modern city. And it's funny because like part of that portrayal is, is like the thing that the film keeps coming back to is this like contrast in Morocco. And again, we should always put like Morocco in all, every time Eliza and I talk about Morocco, we're talking about it in scare quotes. Okay. This is fantasy (laughs) Morocco. This is not a real portrayal of Morocco, obviously to the people making the film and to us. Um, so so what they're showing in the movie that is this like historic fantasy, this Orientalist fantasy that Liza's talking about, the contrast is always about like extreme violence. Like they are threatened mm-hmm. with swords. I can't even tell you how many times. They themselves use swords at various times. But then on the other hand, there's this sort of like permissive sexuality that is mm-hmm. also hidden behind various like sheer veils, which is a kind of a hallmark of 19th century Orientalism especially centered in the Middle East and about, uh, and about Islamic women specifically. So the, that is such a weird contrast, right? Like extreme violence, but also this sort of like soft sexuality. Well, and as we've talked about before with some of the older movies we've covered, we're now in the time period of the Hayes Code mm-hmm. when sexuality has to be talked about in innuendo and subtle remarks, things that could go over a kid's head type of thing. Um, but somehow going to a non-Western location allows them to be a little more overt with the sexuality because these are perceived as people who are exotic and overly sexual and, you know, backwards and whatever. And so they're not showing like a good Christian girl pulling off all of her clothes so they can get away with a woman being more scantily clad. Um, Now, of course, like it's still the 1940s and this was a, you know, a movie meant for families. So the most scantily clad you get is like some belly buttons and maybe a little bit of top cleavage. By our standards today, it's not like a super scandalous, sexy scene. But the way it's portrayed is that you're supposed to understand that these are harem girls. These are, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, courtesans, that they're all having sex, that the men are attracted to them and are coming to this place to be able to have sex behind a veil because you can't. It's all of that stuff is there and it's like right in your face face in this way that they would never do if the movie were taking place in New York. Yeah, absolutely. And they even make, uh, as part of um, this, these sort of very amusing fourth wall breaking moments in the film, which still work to this day, uh, mm-hmm. Eliza and I agree, um, they actually make references even to that. Like, for example, there's a part where they're making a reference to the Dance of the Seven Veils uh, in a song, in the opening title song. And uh, Bob Hope says, I could tell you a little bit more about it, but the censors would be on our tail. Right. Um, yeah, no, they, they know exactly that by going to this location, they can make all of these jokes in a way that they couldn't if they weren't in a quote-unquote exotic location. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Dance of the Seven Veils is another great example of that kind of across-the-board generalization of all the exoticism, because The Dance of the Seven Veils is a reference to a story from the Bible, which then, I believe in an Oscar Wilde play was first actually referred to as the Dance of the Seven Veils. That's correct. Um, Yes, in in the 1800s. And so we're talking about a perception of a sexy dance that a courtesan would do in this area from the 1800s that's actually about a story from 2,000 years ago that we're assuming is how all (laughs) women behave in Morocco currently. Which is insane. (laughs) Well, this is why I love looking to cultural objects uh, and cultural production as a way to teach history, because it shows you how these kind of like references and stories build up on each other. Mm -hmm. Because 
After that Oscar Wilde play, then you have, there's this whole trend in the early uh, 20th century, around the turn of the century, of professional dancers doing a quote-unquote Salome dance. Like, it is the big trend in a lot of these vaudeville houses. The uh, amazing African-American dancer, singer, actress Ada Overton Walker, for example, is extremely famous for her Salome dance around 1905-1906. So it's so interesting that they are also making reference to these like dances that were super popular when Bing Crosby was a young child and then even before that a play before Bing Crosby was even born and then way before that this biblical story. So it's so interesting how narrative has this ability to just like acquire meaning over time that is so disconnected from its <laughs> origin. It's unbelievable. But 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 that's why it's important to do this kind of archaeology to see like no, no, no. This is not about this is not about what Morocco is like. This is about a very long history of a very specific story. Yeah. This is this is about the 1940s film depiction of the 19th century understanding of a biblical description of a large area. <laughs> yeah. But it's so. funny like the things that they do. There there's like one moment where they actually got something right about Islam that I found so striking. Like it's really early on in the movie when they first get to the marketplace in Morocco. And this I assume they're supposed to be in Marrakesh, but they always they keep calling it Marrakesh or Karamish. Anyway, yeah, so, it's it's sort of a, you know, like in Aladdin, how they're in um, Agrabah, which is not uh, a real place. Instead of you Baghdad. Know, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's almost Marrakesh. <laughs> but they're out in the market, and at one point, they're looking for food. They don't have any money. They're starving. They just got off of a shipwreck or whatever. And then they see this um, mentally unwell person moving through the market, just picking up food and walking away with it. And they're like, oh, this is great. Look, they're just giving food away. And then they go over to the market seller and they start trying to take food. And the market seller just like smacks their hand and is like, no, 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 not for you. And they ask him why. And the market seller says, well, you know, we believe that the people who are like misfortunate are like, are, are like holy by Allah. They are like the like sacred people. And so we have to give to them, which is almost right. Like, the third pillar of Sunni Islam, I believe, is almsgiving. So the idea that you give to charity as part of your um, practice as a Muslim is true. But the way they portray it is sort of off, but it's also correct. So yeah, there's like a lot of weird signifiers going on here. And it's right. like so close to being right, but not quite. Well, and then they use that to then just be a prolonged, very uncomfortable joke about portraying a mentally ill person. Because yeah, Bob Hope then does his his bit where he tries to pretend to be mentally ill and they still get caught out, um, which I'm sure audiences enjoyed then, but watching now is so uncomfortable. It's awful. Um, uh, so, you know, so the, yeah, they take these, these little moments of truth and then it gets just like thrown so out of whack. Uh, the Barbary slave trade in Northern Africa was real, right? Like mm-hmm. Barbary pirates absolutely did kidnap people from the European continent and work them as slaves. But it's so funny because there are these moments where when Bing Crosby and um, Bob Hope are talking about slavery, they're clearly thinking about slavery in the American continent, Mm -hmm. the America's version of slavery, because they even make references to picking cotton, for example. So again, it's Mm -hmm. like they take real things that happened, but then they just turn it sideways in a way that makes you go like, ooh, don't do it. Don't do it. The whole attitude towards slavery in this is so strange to watch um, because there is a sort of, again, stemming from the 19th century, especially in a lot of um, visual art, there's this kind of fantastical idea of the white slave Mm -hmm. in the Orient, as it was Mm -hmm. referred to then. 
Um, and this was the idea of not even necessarily white, but a non-black slave trade, right? Yeah. Of people who are, as we keep saying, the spicy whites or mm-hmm. regular whites. And there was this sort of like, oh, but in that case, it's sexy and interesting or whatever. And you get, you know, Aang and Delacroix depicting this sort of, um, you know, harem full of medium-toned skinned women who, you know, they're not black slaves, but they're still slaves in a sexy way. And it's, you know, and when you think about it now, it's so creepy and weird and dehumanizing to so many people but that's the sort of attitude that exists in this where he's like yeah i just sold my friend into slavery and like yeah here's this like harem of slave women and it's like it's fine because it's not you know it's not like picking cotton slavery so this is the okay kind which is just it's mind-boggling to watch yes it is and and it's it's funny because again like you you said it's important to put yourself in the mindset of the people writing this at the time that for them they're making all of these references to that orientalist literature they're making references to these travelogue movies and the kind of fascination with the white slave but from our perspective it just looks like no they're talking about like you know yeah, don't you know that there were Irish slaves too? Like slavery impacted white people also. Stop with that. Not all white men. I yeah. love you. I love everyone who listens to the pod, this podcast. I really do. But if you're a person who's ever made the argument, well, the Irish were held as slaves too, Google that and and learn about why that is not the right argument to be making. Thank, please and thank you. I appreciate you so much. But while we're talking about this sort of gray area between white depictions and black depictions in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about all of the non-white or pseudo-white or spicy white actors who appear in this movie. Yes, let me just crack my knuckles and open my books. (laughs) Let's do it. Talk to me, Janelle. Well, of course, Dorothy L'Amour is a fascinating example of the spicy white um, leading lady, which in this period of time was actually a pretty popular role to play. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, the actress Rita Hayworth is a Mexican <laughs> actress, but she was a very white Mexican, and she portrayed herself as white. So she al- she was allowed to play these roles where she kind of got to pass as white, but she also got to kind of play these like spicy white roles, right? Where she was allowed, she was permitted to portray, like Eliza was saying, a little bit more sexuality under the Hayes Code because that was seen as as permissible for women of color. Largely, may I point out, because her abusive husband during a good portion of her career helped to make her look more white and then helped to market her as non-white in order to walk that line and gain money off of her. Correct. Another interesting reference point for this film to think about in terms of spicy whites is Carmen Miranda. Now, most people will think of Carmen Miranda as the Chiquita Banana Woman. And she was. She was a famous singer, a famous dancer, a famous film star at this time. So the costumes in this movie, Road to Morocco, that were designed by Edith Head, in many cases, even though we are in, remember, scare quotes, Morocco, the the way that the costumes are designed actually makes more reference to Carmen Miranda's costumes, mm-hmm. which at, in their in their heyday period in the... 1930s and the early 1940s were seen as very sexy, right? Because they showed the belly, they showed a little bit of cleavage. And Carmen Miranda was basically adapting the traditional dress of um, Bahia women in uh, Brazil who are Mm -hmm. Afro-Brazilian. But Carmen Miranda herself is Portuguese, born in Portugal, right? So very much in a Brazilian context would be considered white. Yeah. 
But when she comes to the U.S., she is the Brazilian bombshell. She is the spicy Latina, right? Mm -hmm. So this was a very big period of European women, white passing women, getting to sort of ride this line of sexuality. And Dorothy L'Amour is a great example of that. In this movie, she plays a Moroccan woman. In Road to Bali, she plays a Balinese woman, from what I understand, Eliza? In brown face? In yellow face? Yeah, there's there's a lot of brown and yellow face in these movies. Um, and there's this sort of idea that these people who aren't quite white can also play people who aren't quite black. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is how you also get in this movie all of the Moroccan men who they deal with are, again, not Moroccan, not North African or Middle Eastern. Most of them are Mexican actors. Um, yes. Or mixed race actors. Uh, particularly Anthony Quinn, who plays the Sheik. Um, he was a Mexican actor who was well known for performing as a Middle Eastern character a number of times. Um, and the other men who play sort of his entourage as well, most of them are, are not Middle Eastern of any kind. But also the one I find especially interesting as I was looking into this is the actress Donna Drake, who plays the secondary female lead. Mm. She was an actress who was actually of mixed race black ancestry, but portrayed herself to Hollywood as a Mexican actress. Ah, ha, ha. She was a light-skinned black woman. White. Ha, ha, ha. She was a light-skinned black woman who told everyone she was Mexican. In fact, she had a number of stage names she went by that had sort of Carmen Miranda type, you know, names to them to make her sound more Mexican. And in doing so was then able to play a Middle Eastern woman who's white passing in this movie. That is so take a moment to wrap your head around that. Again, it's so interesting to look back at these very specific examples, and it really tells you so much that you need to know about the hierarchy of racialization in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Like, she, she knew that by passing herself off as a Latina, that she could get some roles in the film industry, probably not the big, big leads, but maybe, right? Depending on the film mm-hmm. project at the time. But as a mixed-race black woman... What was she would only be able to play a maid or a nanny or a slave. Right, right. And, and because she was able to pass them, she or she also um, was able to get certain kinds of access to certain offices, to certain mm-hmm. people. Because at the time, of course, Hollywood was extremely segregated, like everywhere else. Absolutely. I mean, in this movie, she is playing the romantic opposite to Bob Hope. And that would never have been allowed if the studios understood her as a black woman. And it's part of a a whole history within Hollywood of this sort of racial politics. You know, this movie you can trace back directly to the 1921 movie, The Sheik, Mm -hmm. which was a silent film that anyone who's taken a film class has probably watched because it's one of those, like, you need to understand that movie in order to understand so much of what came after that. Um, And that, again, is a movie which takes place in a sort of vaguely Middle Eastern Oriental location. It has a sheik who has a concubine and a white man comes in and tries to take her and blah, 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 blah. And the sheik is played by Rudy Valentino, who was an Italian actor. Mm Mm-hmm who multiple times played this character. There's there's like the Sheik 2 and 3. Um, and because he was playing a non-white character, was able to be incredibly sexual and aggressive and violent in a way that audiences loved mm-hmm. and kept wanting more of, rather than playing what in any other movie would have been like the bad character who was like that. Um, and that the success of that led to another you know, 40 years of this intense orientalizing 
within the you know Hollywood movie structure. Well, and for me, as someone who studies whiteness, it's also so interesting to show what a difference 20 years makes in people's understandings of who mm. is and isn't white. In the 20s, Rudy Valentino would have been seen as, at best, a marginal white, but probably not as white because mm-hmm. he was because he was Italian born. By the 1940s, those politics are changing quite a bit. And then instead, you have Anthony Quinn, Mexican-American, playing the mm-hmm. chic role. So we're seeing how an Italian wouldn't necessarily be able to, to w- take on that mantle of, of the acceptable other then, mm-hmm. because the, the terms of whiteness had changed to include Italians somewhat by that time. Not entirely, well, but somewhat. But somewhat. And if you then move even for- farther forward, when you get to the 60s and the 70s, you start getting Italians being portrayed in movies as Italian in right. a way that does not other them as non-white, but still others them as poor white, right? You get, you get movies like The Godfather, Goodfellas, all that kind of thing, where now all of these actors, many of whom aren't Italian, many of whom are Mexican, are Greek, or whatever, are hoping to play the Italians. Right. Because now this is the new fascination, but they're now acceptable as part of, like, the white business culture if sort of the underbelly of that. I want to talk about another moment that I feel like is so revealing with the racial politics of this period, too, that is so small. Um, but it's so important to tell you about the context of this film and when it was made. So in the beginning of the movie, there is a, mm. there's the, this boat gets sunk. This is where, you know, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby get sunk and they get on their way to Morocco, right? Various news readers are reading the news of this ship sinking, one of whom is reading the news in Chinese, right? Visibly Asian man, right? Let's presume an Asian American actor uh, reading this news clipping in Chinese he pulls out a button and puts a button on his lapel that says, I am Chinese. Why is that important? It's important because at that very moment, Japanese Americans were being held in internment camps, not far from where this movie was probably filmed. Wow. They jump to a bunch of different newscasters reading in several different languages before they get to the one in English, but they begin with this Chinese newscaster and then jump through several other languages, and it is a way of them telling you this movie does not take place in America. We're going globetrotting. Here we go. Um, and it's it's a very clear indicator right from the start. And then they make it very clear, like, but we're going to the acceptable places where we can globetrot right now. Exactly. You know, China right now is an ally. Japan is an enemy. Mm-hmm. My, how the turntables. Oh, well, yeah. And also, hey, that scene where the Russian newscaster's reading it and Stalin, the picture of Stalin's right behind him. I'm like, <laughs> wait 10 years. You're going to regret this. <laughs> yeah, really, that transition from the period between World War One and World War Two to all of American politics after that is is pretty intense. A lot of stuff happens, you guys. That forty five to fifty five period. Who boy, strap in. But but I think that like what is so fascinating to me about that moment is it just it's such a small thing, but it was so important to these filmmakers clearly to like mm-hmm. make that clear that they were not supporting Japan. Like it, and I'm sure it was also a censorship moment, wasn't it, Eliza? Probably mm-hmm. the Hayes Code. They probably were like, "You need to make it very clear that this person's not Japanese, because those people are enemies of the United States." Um, and in a movie which, as you said earlier, in no other way addresses the current crisis of World War II, they do have those little moments that show what's happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, if you compare this to another movie which came out in the same year, 1942, also placed in Morocco, Casablanca which is about the war very specifically, 
you can see a real difference in a movie which does not acknowledge what's happening versus a movie which is entirely about it, but also still with the fascination of the same location. Eliza, my jaw is literally dropped that Casablanca came out the same year as this movie. It did. It came out about six months later. Um, and the difference, besides just that they're different you know, genres of movie, Road to Morocco was written and mostly filmed before the actual fighting began um, in Morocco on the North Af- African theater, whereas Casablanca was written literally as the fighting was beginning, right? As you said, uh, you've got the Vichy French government in control as the colonizers in Morocco. Um, and as the war suddenly moves there, that's when Casablanca is written and filmed in a very quick period and then released in real time, kind of. Wow. And and again, like from a from a I know I'm talking so much about history today and I'm sorry, but this movie is like such a great time capsule and it and it allows you to think so much about this really interesting period of American history. But the fact that these movies came out so close together and it was the difference of six months, it just mm-hmm. really shows you also how culture at any given time, the culture is never just one thing, right? There's there's high culture, there's low culture, there's mm-hmm subversive culture and mainstream culture and it's so interesting to think about these movies as a case study of like comedy and very like family-friendly mainstream filmmaking and Casablanca was mainstream too but it was more like a a serious movie an art movie Mm -hmm. and the difference in how Morocco is portrayed in in either film is someone's written a paper about it I'm sure oh absolutely yeah comparing these two is is fascinating um, and again, these movies were made and produced and released to the public very quickly. Hollywood really was churning things out at this point um, in a way that we, I would say, in the modern day think much more about like television um, and not highbrow television, like sitcom television, that kind of like, here are the you know six genres that we release TV in, here are the six stories within each of those genres, and we will just give you... 400 episodes of CSI and 500 <laughs> episodes of the Big Bang Theory and just whip them out. And because we're whipping them out so quickly, they can make reference to very current trends. You can, you know, reference Taylor Swift's latest song drop in your episode of, you know, the Big Bang Theory because it only happened a few months before the episode gets released. And so it's still relevant in a way that most movies today do not happen because movies are filmed over months and months and months and then have a year of, you know, CGI and special effects editing mm-hmm. and then get marketed. And then get released on a certain day. That's not what was happening then. Stuff was happening in the news and they were going, oh, well, let's just write that straight into the script. Whether that was a script that was about something serious or just a script that was making, you know, lighthearted cultural commentary. And I, I'm just thinking about how movies are made and this history of like how quickly these films are put together. And you think about it in the contrast of how long films are in production now. So we hold mm-hmm. them really to this standard to really like, you had time to think about this, guys, you know? And I'm, but but not at the same time, I'm thinking about how much in this film, in Road to Morocco, resonates so much with what we've seen all month long in these travel rom coms. Like, there's so many beats and ideas and sort of like story structures that still persist. You know, there's still mm-hmm. the idea of you go to a different location and you meet a quote unquote exotic lover. I mean, almost all of the films that we looked at had that. You know, absolutely. Yeah, this still operates as what we would consider a travel rom-com. It's obviously heavier on the com than on the rom. Um, But, you know, (laughs) but it's got that same kind of thing. Someone goes to a location they haven't been before. They meet someone who's more familiar with the area. They fall for them. They have an entire adventure while they're in this place. And then it ends with them returning to New York. Yes. 
Yes. With with their new conquests, their new ladies. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it functionally is is no different than, you know, letters to Juliet or or whatever. Um and so it's it's so interesting to see which things continue on into today. And the other thing is uh, we keep coming back to the comedy, they're breaking the fourth wall comedy when you strip away everything else from this movie does still work. It's and it it, they were one of the comedic duos that really pioneered this um in a film setting. You know, obviously breaking the fourth wall has existed for you know thousands of years. Um but this sort of comedic quip to the camera was new at this time. You know, we're still in the early days of talkies, right? We're still figuring out how to use the medium of film for comedic sake and being able to do these quick asides where you talk to an audience, understanding that you have this theater audience um, is, you know, the, the writers are still sort of playing with it and trying to figure it out. And these road Two movies were one of the first sort of sets of comedy films that really got it right. And you can see a direct line from Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in Road to Morocco to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, mm-hmm. to any of Mel Brooks's, you know, Spaceballs or Blazing Saddles, Men in Tights, to Jay and Silent Bob, to Deadpool, to Jim looking at the camera in the office, right? Like these all grew out of this comedy, which was being perfected by Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in this moment in the 40s. Yeah, it's you're you're absolutely right. And and you can see why because it's the part of the film that works so well. These like sort of lighthearted moments where they step out of the action which is so escapist and talk directly to us as if they're on stage, right? Like I think my favorite version of this is in the kind of final climax of the movie when they are trying to liberate okay. Um hmm. our our Dorothy Lamore character from her chic husband to be. Who can sorry, can I just take a break to say that like I think the chic seems nice. I don't entirely understand why she didn't want to be. Like, I kept being like, does she want to be with him? Because he seems great. Like, why not? He's a chic. Like, get it. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's not Bing Crosby. Uh, so, Bing, you were great. I love you and everything. You know, White Christmas is my movie. But the chic, the chic was looking good. Uh, anyway, sorry. That's, a, that's my own aside to the camera. Um, I love when they're breaking out of whatever, the chic jail. Um and uh, they, <laughs> there's a moment where Bob Hope is like, well, this happened and this happened. And now we're in this situation. And Bing Crosby's <laughs> like, well, that we, I know that all just happened. And Bob Hope says, yeah, but the people who just came in in the middle of the movie don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great moment, especially because understanding that back then, and this was true, like up through the 70s, you could just buy a ticket and walk into a movie at any time. You didn't have to walk in at the beginning of the movie. So people would like buy a ticket for a double feature and just show up halfway through the first movie and then just stick around for a while. Um, so it's very possible that there were people who just came in and needed that kind of, okay, so here's what's happening. The Sheik is the bad guy now because the girl doesn't want to be with him. She wants to be with us. Okay, we're good. Let's keep going. But instead of trying to like write that in in a more seamless way, they just tell the camera and then comment on it. Um there's also, you know, right at the beginning during their opening song, which is sort of the most iconic part of this movie, in addition to the comments about Dorothy L'Amour and about the Dance of the Seven Veils, they also have a comment about the um, none of the bad guys will be able to kill them because they still have a contract with Paramount for another five years. <laughs> and they're in this series of movies where they keep coming back. So, like, they can't die. Um, you know, and that sort of stuff I feel like is so common in TV and movies today, and we don't think about sort of where that humor started. 
Yeah, because that's pretty absurd comedy. I mean, in the you're right, like in the development of comedy at the time, that would have been considered like meta. Let's be very clear. Well, while we had early versions of what we could now call like meta commentary in media, like in Shakespeare with the soliloquies, um, it wasn't quite what we call meta today, but this is legit. This is like meta connect to the audience, talk mm-hmm. about the means of production of the film itself, which was only starting to become a thing in theater 20 years before this. Mm -hmm. So it's very avant-garde kind of humor for the time, which is so cool. Right. Like there's a difference between breaking the fourth wall to speak to the audience, which is what you do in a soliloquy or a monologue, versus breaking the fourth wall to comment on what's happening on stage to Mm -hmm. the audience, right? Like these guys are genre savvy, Mm -hmm. which is not something you see in other movies at the time. Um, And is why I drew a direct line to Deadpool, because it's that kind of humor, right? It's that kind of... I understand what movie I'm in. So when I break the fourth wall, I'm not just going to comment on the characters around me. I'm going to comment on the actual genre we are existing in and understand what's about to happen because I know what this plot is already, same as you. Like, that's a whole other level. Yes, exactly. And the Deadpool comparison is pitch perfect, Eliza. Like, that, they do that so well in those movies because it works for his character. And it works so well for these Road 2 movies because the audience knows that this is a series of movies and they know it's mm-hmm. the same actors over and over again. So it makes sense to make reference to that rather than try to wring your hands, making it make sense that they are not mm-hmm. the same people. But it's funny because I feel like in contemporary media, sometimes people overplay this sort of meta-awareness, this genre savviness now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, screenwriters of today, I feel like we could look back to Road to Morocco and, and we could scrap most things about it. But looking back at just how <laughs> they do the meta commentary and the talking to the camera part is really well balanced. You know, it's not cynical. It's just delightful. I don't like yeah. that it becomes cynical. No, it's very joyous and optimistic. It's not like, oh, God, here we go again. They're they're looking at the camera like, all right, you know what happens next. And I know what happens next. Get excited. Um, another moment in this movie that's like that which makes more sense if you've seen the other movies, the two of them have this bit that they do where they start playing patty cake, and then when they get to the last beat of it, instead of hitting each other's hands, they punch the guy standing next to them. Mm-hmm. Um, which, this, at this point, they're in the third Road 2 movie. They've done it in the first two. And it's, you know, it's not an unfamiliar type of comedic fighting. You know, you see stuff like that in, in Three Stooges or, or whatnot as well, but they had this particular routine they did. And they start to do it in this one and they get to what would be the last beat when they should punch the sheik and he pushes both of them to the ground. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So like as a moment, you and the audience are like, oh, here they go with the patty cake bit. And then they subvert it with this like huge wink to the audience and in a way that, you know, has very perfectly timed physical comedy as well. And that works just as well as as the verbal asides. It's, you know, we don't necessarily, now that we've moved through the postmodern era and we're now in like the post-postmodern era, like we don't necessarily need to go back to the codified period of like very specific sort of like Del Sartre system comedy bits, but they're so fun. I enjoy them. They are, <laughs> they're yeah. delightful. Bring on the Marx Brothers. You know, Marx Brothers, there's a lot of great comedy there. There's also a lot of weirdness, but there's so much to love. And a lot of that doesn't age. It it just, it stays forever funny. And Bing Crosby's voice. I'm sorry. I, I know, like... It's it's not cool to celebrate a dead white guy like I get it but damn <laughs> that man could sing and I will listen to I will listen to his Christmas album every Christmas for the rest of my life. <laughs> no, he is one of the great crooners. There there's a reason that he was as successful as he was for as long as he was. And this movie for all of its 
comedy and all of its strangeness does have a number of very lovely songs because it's still in the vaudeville style. So when there's been too much frantic energy, they just stop and sing a love song. And it's delightful. The, the song, I believe it's, uh, is it called You Look Beautiful by Moonlight that they sing sort of in the gardens yes. together, him and Dorothy Lamore. And there's, they have their Romeo and Juliet moment, I guess. I don't know why we have to keep doing this. <laughs> For those who don't know how Janelle feels about Romeo and Juliet moments, <laughs> listen to our previous episode. Letters to Juliet. Sorry, Mel. But yeah, it's, 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 you know, there's something to be said. It's sort of, I, I guess this is a, a, a wraps up what we were saying about when you look back on older pieces of media, why it's so important to put them in their context, because you can scrap this movie entirely and say that it is like awful because of the, the culturally harmful things that it does in it, that it are about Orientalism. And, and that is true, right? Like all of those portrayals should, should be scrapped, mm-hmm. but there are, there are pieces of what was made in the past that are interesting to think about as like cultural makers moving into the future. And one of them is to look at the vaudeville form and consider like, what does it offer us? What is there to be learned from a, a, a storytelling form that, that really leans into the audience's ride of a performance, right? The high energy, mm-hmm. the soft energy, the high energy, the soft energy, the, the, the laughter and the tears, you know, it's, People were doing these things for so long for a reason, because they worked. So what we do is we get rid of the stuff that was bad, that hurts people, and we keep the stuff that worked. That's all. Well said. Every week about this time, we like to take a break to thank our patrons on Patreon, and very specifically our romantic leads, who are Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. Uh, Many thanks. We'll see you on the road to our next episode. We also want to thank all of our listeners and our supporters. You can show us some love by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, And if you want to contribute to the continued making of this, go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Eliza, wow, that was a really rousing conversation. I feel like shout out to our friends at the the Speakeasy podcast, who uh, I hope will have a lot to say to us about this period of filmmaking. They're the experts uh, along with you. So shout out to those guys. But that was rousing. I am thrilled to hear what your uh, expertise led you to in terms of antidotes for this movie. All right. I'm pretty excited about my antidotes. I was struggling for a while because I was like, there's so much wrong with this. How do I, you know, appropriately respond? Um, But I've got a couple things that I think, um, I think fit the bill. So the first is a more modern and much more nuanced look at what the 19th and early 20th century would consider the Orient, in this particular case, the Middle East. Um, And that's the graphic novel slash memoir Persepolis. Oh, nice. Um, and its follow-up, Persepolis too. They are written by Marjane Satrapi, who was a young woman who lived in Iran during the Islamic Revolution um, in the late 70s and early 80s. And they are these absolutely beautiful, moving, funny, insightful, wonderful graphic novels about her experience being a preteen and a teenager during this time where Iran went from being a very sort of modern, um, entrenched in international culture place to being a place that was very um, singular in its cultural situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it talks about the religious aspects and the cultural aspects and the parts of just being a teenager and trying to exist when, you know, the world is crumbling around you, which I feel like is something that a lot of people can relate to these days. Um, And it's just really lovely. 
everyone should should go read Persepolis. It's it's an easy read, but it it has you'll learn so much from it. Um, and it's really wonderful to see someone's perception of that area and that time from being in the middle of it. Mm. So I think that's just a, a better look at the Middle East and Islamic culture um, and a more nuanced take on all of it. Now, if you like this movie because you like the comedy and you are attracted to that sort of fourth wall breaking, uh, as I said, that sort of comedy, you can find it in so many places these days. I mentioned Mel Brooks and I think, you know, go watch Robin Hood Men in Tights and you'll see the exact same stuff and that's great. But what I want to say as my official antidote is actually go watch The Muppets. Mm. Uh, go watch The Muppet Movie or The Great Muppet Caper. Um, or any any Muppets things, even though like the Muppet Show and stuff, you can find a lot of it. I think now on Disney Plus. Um, but the Muppets, in the way that they do their movies, Janelle. I mean, the structure is mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. Like it, the the Muppet movie where they're all trying to get to L.A. so that they can start working on their show, and the Road Two movies, they are structurally so similar in so many ways. Um, <laughs> you know, and and those kind of Bing and Bob side commentary happen in the Muppets all of the time. I was thinking about, you know, when they have that scene where Bob is like, yeah, 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 and then this happened and this happened and then we have to stop the sheik, blah, 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 blah. Why are you telling me this? I know all this already. Yeah, but if anyone who just walked in from the audience, they don't know it. That exchange happens in A Muppet Christmas Carol between Gonzo and Rizzo. <laughs> where Gonzo's literally like, I'm explaining it for the kids at home. That exchange happens in the Muppet movie between Kermit and Fozzie. Kermit literally says he's explaining something to the audience in case they missed it at the beginning. And Fozzie's like, oh, that makes sense. I mean, it's a direct correlation, but, <laughs> but it's the Muppets. So it's just so, you know, beautiful and lighthearted and wonderful. And it will make you feel better about Hollywood after watching this movie where you'll just feel really icky. That's my antidote for the week. Janelle, what have you got for me? Okay, I'm, I'm excited about this too. Um, I have kind of a similar uh, approach to what you took, uh, which I wanted to recommend one of the best academic books I've ever read um, first by the, the sadly um, past uh, critic Saba Mahmood. Um, and the book is called The Politics of Piety. Uh, it's about uh, religious Muslim women in Egypt. It's a, an ethnography about how these women organize their lives, how they approach politics and religion. And it's essentially a giant critique of the idea that Muslim women need saving from feminism, right? Mm-hmm. The, the pious Muslim women need saving from feminism. Uh, and the, the complexities of what that assertion even implies about Muslim women's agency. Uh, so I think, I mean, we didn't even get into how women are portrayed in this movie because there's so many things wrong with it. Um, and it almost seems so obvious that any movie that has a harem <laughs> as a primary body of characters is going to have some problems. But The Politics of Piety is just an, it's a very accessible academic book. And I think it was really enlightening for me and how I thought about the politics of agency um, for Muslim women, especially Mm -hmm. after all of the brainwashing I had as a teenager growing up in the Bush era. So I would recommend checking that out to kind of wring your brain out from from a different perspective. And second, I wanted to recommend what I think, you know, given that The Road to Morocco, as we said, it's a satire, it's a comedy, it is speaking very much to its moment. Um, I wanted to recommend for me the best social cultural satire ever made. And that is Josie and the Pussycats. 
2001. <laughs> Janelle. Listen, Eliza and I talk about this recently, and I stand by this, that if you want to watch a movie that nails to the wall a specific cultural moment in the funniest way possible with the most incisive anti-capitalist criticism... I'm not kidding. Go and watch Josie and the Pussycats. Do not question me. And you will be shocked at how many Gen Z kids of the TikTok generation would watch this movie and go, damn, they were right. All I see here is truth. So because, And of course, the soundtrack was written by the late great songwriter Adam Schlesinger and performed by Kay Hanley, the lead singer of Letters to Cleo. It was produced by Babyface. Okay, listen. This movie is brilliant. The soundtrack is incredible. It's extremely fun. And it's smart and critical. Josie and the Pussycats, watch it today. That's my antidote. (laughs) Like I said at the beginning, there's a lot not to like about this movie. There's a lot to like about it. Whether we like it or not, it's a part of our cultural tradition and our cultural history. Um, And so it's better just to to learn from it and move forward. Exactly. Stay critical, guys. That's, That's the answer. Stay critical. Stay critical. Kill that joy. Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash rom killjoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See you next time.